You're listening to Cancer Covered. Our relationship to alcohol is very bipolar, and no one said this better than Noah Sweat, a Mississippi state legislator who spoke about a proposed bill to ban alcohol in Mississippi in 1954. In his now famous speech, Mr. Sweat said, Here is how I feel about whiskey. If, when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if, when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness, and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows. If you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful aged and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Alcohol is precious to people the world over and nowhere more than in Wisconsin. We've heard the grim statistics about the downsides of alcohol in the news. And we've heard how the latest medical evidence debunks the idea that moderate alcohol offers health benefits. But we're adults, we know what we like, and preaching medical facts will not change how we feel about alcohol or diminish our enjoyment of it. So in today's episode, we're gonna talk about what we love about alcohol, how well it lives up to our expectations, and reconsider what we think we know about it. If you've been rethinking the role of alcohol in your life, this episode is for you. Ruth, it's Friday and you're off and here we are. It's nice to see you. Good morning. I was up early. Yeah. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. So it's been said that people are not swayed by reason, but instead only use reason to justify doing what they want. True. Absolutely. However, I think there's real nuances to that. If that's true and alcohol is something we want and much of our conversation about alcohol is about rationalization and justification and explanation, um, what what is it that we we love so much about alcohol? What what do you what do you love so much about it, for instance? Well, you know, growing up, you know, we were taught to love alcohol. As children, you know, we all laugh, you know, when children try alcohol and they just absolutely hate the taste. It's hilarious, Um, right? uh, I mean, 
I was talking with a friend the other day and, and he loves his bourbon. And he was like, yeah, it took me a year to kind of get used to it. And I was really struck by that. Mm-hmm. You know, It was like, why would it take a year to like, and, like and, something? And then we muscled through that. Right. Yeah, what was right. it we were going for? Right. Exactly. exactly. You know, for me, I feel like I was really taught because my parents drank and my dad drank excessively. I was taught that that's how you gather that when there's gathering, that's what you do. As I witnessed those gatherings, they were fun. And there were people that I that I loved and I really liked them. And they all looked like they were having such a good time. And so for me, that was sort of the first lesson in that alcohol brings us together. But I was also a witness how alcohol can really destroy people's lives and ruin connections as well. My uh, relationship with alcohol was coming from growing up in a teetotaling family was something that wasn't socially acceptable, at least in our in our circles. And it and at least for me, everything that was forbidden was absolutely fascinating and enthralling. And so it was something that that I thought I, I couldn't get past the idea that I was uh, being denied something that looked like a tremendous amount of fun because everybody, you know, talked about it and everybody talked about how great the party was and how funny it was. And it was it was something that I, I wanted to jump into with both feet. And I certainly did. Yeah, the forbidden fruit. Yep. That's what it was for me. When do you enjoy it the most? For me, it's usually around some sort of ritual. And it was usually around coming home, making dinner. Mm-hmm. Going out to dinner was always like those two things go together like bread and butter. For me, it was always uh, the beer after work or with friends and on Friday nights, you know, having a, a couple of fingers of, of scotch. Uh, that was something I always looked forward to. And and it really was about unwinding and, and, and relaxation for me. That was one of the things that, that I enjoyed. Uh, socializing, of course, just trying different things, having conversations about it. That was, uh, it was fun. And it's a little surprising how much conversation gets taken up by it. And honestly, it's like, when are we drinking? Can we get a drink? Are we drinking? What will we be drinking? What What should we get for the next round? It it, it really does occupy a lot of, and, and, you know, and starting on Thursday, sometimes it seems like the conversation at work is about little else. Yeah. And well, the thing is, is that, you know, I look at the the alcohol drinker on a spectrum and a person that is at one end, uh, let's just say the left end of the spectrum that, you know, can take it or leave it, can go out to dinner and be social. Um, they're not thinking about what's my next drink. You know, it's it's then you move into the functional user and all these new habits and pattern is, oh, we get together after work and we always do it. And it's been such a hard day. And, and then it just, and then you start moving to the right of the spectrum and then, you know, it starts to be more pervasive throughout your day and and your lifestyle. And, and then you just start thinking about what you're going to have, when you're going to buy it, where you're going to buy it, you know, do I have all the ingredients, you know, and, you know, and then it's like, well, I'm going to have one more. And you haven't even gotten through the yeah. one you're having. That was my first real sign of trouble. I think you you described it very well. When it stopped being a, a, a way to relax and, a you know, a Friday ritual or a ritual with friends, as, as you described. And for me, I became increasingly preoccupied and sometimes even anxious about 
when do I get my next one? Right. And it was whether, it, you know, I was waiting to get off work so that I could get to a drink or if I was having one and wondering when the next round is coming. And there's so many layers to that consciousness because no doubt you just, there was just something there underneath that you were just like, I just want to feel lighter about it. And there's something deeper that, you know, I just want to, whatever wants to bubble up, Mm -hmm. you know, I just would rather it not be there. We tend to think of alcohol as a social lubricant, something that helps smooth our connections with others. And it seems there's almost nothing we won't try to enhance with a drink. And that breadth of circumstances begs the question, how well does alcohol cover all those bases? There's a wide range of things that people look for and hope to enjoy or enhance with alcohol. And I mean, maybe we should list some of the ones that we've experienced or we've heard other people talk about. I mean, relief from stress or relaxation, enhancing socialization, enhancing conversation. I've heard it pitched as an enhancement for intimacy, even. What about you? What other, what things have you heard people say they use alcohol for or use it to enhance? Well, just even in my own experience, just being a teenager, having social anxiety, um, just not being really comfortable in myself. I used it to, you know, open up, to be more comfortable at the party, to fit in. You know, everybody else has a drink in their hand, you know. So as I got older, I'll attest, I love wine pairings with food. And I remember the first time that I was introduced to how I always thought like, you know, milk and chocolate went great together. But I remember the first time, you know, I was introduced by a sommelier that wine could really enhance the experience of what you were tasting. And I was like, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's the perception that you just need to loosen up. You brought up this intimacy, you know, they just need to loosen up, have a couple of drinks, you know, now in today's age, there's college campuses that are like, if you've even had one drink, you can't give consent. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I just think that we're there's, we're there's all, such a thing as too loose. Yeah. Right. And some extremes, it's just like, can you actually authorize anything yeah. if you've even had one because you're altered? So anxiety, I mean, anxiety about being oneself or anxiety about being acceptable or anxiety about integrating socially and alcohol as a social lubricant of that sort. But I mean, it really, it seems to me like it's just another form of anxiolytic. I mean, we're using it to resolve our own anxiety about being accepted or being liked or being likable. And I think, I think if we stay at the higher level and just be like, oh, alcohol increases connection just at the higher level. And there's two ways of connecting. There's connecting to yourself and there's connecting to another. And when we have to use a substance in order to enhance that, I think that's where, you know, really getting curious around why that is. Why is my connection to myself supposedly enhanced? You know, why is my connection to others supposedly enhanced? Why is my connection and taste of food supposedly enhanced because of the presence of this substance. And that increasingly these days goes beyond just alcohol. Oh, absolutely. You know, 
alcohol use is actually down now in the age of cannabis. And now there's shrooms on the, you know, everybody's just mm-hmm. talking about, you know, microdosing and all sorts of things and, and then the opioid crisis and everything else. And the the big question is, why do we need to be altered? You know, why do we need to be altered in anything in our connections to ourselves and the connections to others? Have any functional theories for yourself? Well, for sure. I think I'm an inside job. So and I, my outward experience with everything is enhanced by my inner experience. So everything that I do now in my life is about increasing that connection with myself. And when I do that with courage, no judgment, 100% love and integrity, which includes radical honesty. When I do that and I enhance my inner connection to myself with those principles, my outer connection with everyone else is so amplified with everything else is so amplified. Judgment for me is something that is really hard not to do. First and foremost with myself, by extension as well, everybody else, because connecting with myself is painful in that way sometimes. Less so, you know, maybe with age, maybe with time, maybe with learning to be a little bit more kind to myself and hopefully to other people. But I don't think I'm that unique in that way. I think that's I think that's very common. I think people worry about connecting with other people and need a connection enhancer with themselves because everyone judges themselves pretty harshly. Absolutely. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you, wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in-person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. You know, we were taught, well, you know, when we were born, we were born good. You know, we were born beautiful babies. If you've ever taken care of a little baby, I mean, they're just like this little ball of light and love. We're taught that there's something wrong with us. You know, like we mm-hmm. interact with our caregivers and our, and this is no judgment on anybody that comes into our lives, but we weren't born judging ourselves. We were taught to judge ourselves and we were taught that there was something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And that is the beginning of our separation and our connection to ourselves and our true light, our true goodness. And when we have that inner critic, when we start making that loop of that inner chatter, that inner judger, we suffer greatly internally. So how well does it work? Do you think for if, if alcohol is a commonly used substance to 
enhance our connections with ourselves, to alleviate our anxiety by connecting with ourselves and others. How well does it work? I don't think it enhances any connection to oneself. And I think the people that can take it or leave it are not using it in that way. There was a study published in 2017 in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence that looked at self-soothing use of alcohol with anxiety and social anxiety. And it was a self-reported study of anxiety scores before, during, and after alcohol use uh, among people of various ages. And paradoxically, the anxiety scores for most people who were reaching for alcohol to relax or to resolve anxiety socially uh, didn't really have a sustained benefit for what they were using it for. We know that alcohol, when used to self-soothe for things like depression, magnifies the symptoms. I mean, at least on those counts, it really doesn't perform very well. No, I mean, for me, I think the next day, the anxiety is like amplified. You know, what did I do? Did, <laughs> you know, but, what's on the IG feed? Did I, did I make a fool of myself or something of that sort, right? Well, because you're still not dealing with whatever it is that's just triggering that inner discomfort. If it underperforms as an anxiety treater, how well does it enhance enjoyment and social activities? I mean, the way we talk about it after the fact is, let's say at the very best case scenario, it enhances the evening that you hopefully remember, but it often does so at the expense of the next morning. Absolutely. And sometimes if you're having a great time, but it costs you some of the awareness of the event you're at, or even the memory of the event you're at, I mean, how much enhancement is it really bringing? I think there's reason to question its benefit in that way as well. So much of your day is really defined by the night before. Your day is defined by the night before. Did you sleep well? Did you hydrate? Did you have one too many? But I have actually moved that question to earlier the night before, because it really defined, you know, how late do I want to stay up? Do I re actually really want to watch that movie with my kids until midnight? Because I know I get up at five. Right. You know, do I want to have a couple of drinks? You know, do I want to eat a bunch of sugar before I go to bed? Do I want to skip my workout or whatever it is? But mm -hmm. so much of my day is defined by the night before. And absolutely. Because science and knowledge are constantly evolving, what we know or think we know about health, exercise, and diet seems to change every few years. It can be confusing. So it seemed relevant to review what the current evidence says about how alcohol affects our health. And the consensus is, well, sobering. Some of the initial thoughts and studies that suggested a modest health benefit to moderate alcohol have really come under closer scrutiny lately. And again, the initial studies were rather limited and the benefit was rather modest. And it was very clearly defined in terms of moderate alcohol, one to two drinks at most for an adult person. But more recently, subsequent study has raised significant questions about whether alcohol has any benefit at all. I remember when I was like a teenager in my 20s and I heard that, you know, report that, you know, having a glass of red wine, one or two glasses every night is so good for you because in this small village in Italy, right. you know, these people live to a hundred and they drink a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
my everything in my body was like, and I'm a drinker. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> that is just BS. You know, now we know that those people in that town also gather with family. They have connections that are not about alcohol. It's about food. And then they walk around and they climb hills and mm-hmm. they take a nap and they don't work, you know, uh, you know, a hundred hours a week and their food is organic and grown and they don't eat until they're engorged. They're not living this life of extreme. And yeah, they have a glass of wine every day, but it's not cause and effect. In in 2022, the world heart Federation uh, declared that uh, contrary to popular opinion, and I quote, alcohol is not good for your heart. We do know now uh, with clarity and based on uh, very good evidence that, even moderate alcohol increases the risk of stroke and heart disease substantially. As far as cancer risk goes, uh, it turns out that there is no safe level of alcohol use. Alcohol use uh, to any degree, largely because of some active metabolites and acetaldehyde, are potently carcinogenic, and it markedly increases the risk of just about all the common cancers you can think of, uh, breast cancer and colon cancer and lung cancer, and, and that's independent of whether someone smokes or not smoking is going into it, it magnifies that. It's estimated, according to the American Cancer Society, that alcohol contributes to more than 75,000 new cancer cases per year in the United States and contributes significantly to at least 19,000 excess cancer deaths per year. It's also estimated by the Institutes of Health that alcohol is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. So the statistics are are pretty grim, really. And I think it it begs the question, what is it that we're looking for? And what is it we're hoping to get? And are we getting our money's worth? I think anybody who's ever had a couple of drinks at night, can he actually just feel it the next day? It's like they don't sleep well. They're foggy. It's a neurotoxin. I mean, I think about that as well. And as we have an aging population, um, memories are declining and how much of, you know, just our regular diet lifestyle and, and uh, alcohol is contributing to that. Personally, I think we are living lifestyles that we want to escape from. I think we are running from ourselves. I think we're running from our connection. I think we believe the lie that it enhances our connection with people, our lives, gatherings and business functions. But it's really more anesthetic. It's, you know, anytime you need to be numb, why? Why? And that's, that's the big question. And that's what I ask myself. Annual observances such as dry January or sober October, when groups of friends or social media contacts abstain from alcohol together, are increasingly popular. These movements raise interesting societal questions and often bring people face-to-face with personal patterns they may never have recognized before. I asked Ruth what she thought about them. You know, we talk about this movement, so Sober Curious, and it's really getting traction. And I really like this conversation around it because it's so uncomfortable when you're going to a party and you're like, no, I'm not going to drink. And then people are like, what's wrong with you? How awkward is it? You know, like, do you, I'm not drinking right now. Oh, do you have a problem? It's so normal to go to a party that it's now no longer normal 
to go to a party and not drink. And I love how this sober curious movement is just normalizing it. It's just like, no, I just, me not drinking doesn't have to represent this massive problem. It's just a choice that I'm making, you know, to look into what it's doing for me. Is that something you've ever dipped your toe into? Have you ever done a, a sober October or a dry January, which which I suppose are the the, the more popular observances these days? You know, um, I don't do those prescribed months, but I have in my journey just asked myself every day, you know, why do I want that right now? I'm just going to explore. So I've taken a month just randomly, just because I'm like, I just want to explore what that's doing for me. Mm-hmm. I want to explore how I feel around it. You know, what's it bringing into my life? I forget which philosopher had said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I, I think every aspect of our lives is always should be up for reconsideration. And that should include any of our habits, whether it's our exercise habits or whether it's our decision to enjoy alcohol or, or to abstain or which one to do uh, tonight. But in reflecting on it, I think we can definitely come face to face with some of the real issues. If we contemplate the idea and we find it fearful, there's probably something there to tap into. If we try it and find that our lives are different or, or better with it or without it, then that's worth contemplating. And I would say if at any time anyone contemplates doing something like that, like a sober October or a dry January and says, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to give this a try and struggles to complete it, it probably should raise some red flags and alarms that, you know what, maybe my relationship to this thing isn't as voluntary as I thought. And if you're a listener out there and you ever find yourself in a position like that, you think, you know what, I'd like to try this, but then simply cannot for whatever reason follow through and find yourself rethinking your connection with alcohol and whether or not it's become a health hazard for you, I urge you to seek help because there is help out there. There's effective medical therapy, both medication and the behavioral interventions. We know that cognitive behavioral therapy is effective for people who are working on redefining the role of alcohol in their lives. We also know supportive communities, AA being a prototype, enhance people's chances of success at finding a more balanced relationship with alcohol in their lives. You know, in the first year that someone is actually trying to get sober, that's the highest relapse rate. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult. I have my own addictions. I have my own patterns. And I relapse into my prior patterns and behaviors all the time. But I now no longer judge myself because I'm like, it's okay. It's like trying to ride a bike. You're just going to have to practice, you know, stepping into a new pattern because you're not bringing awareness to the fact that you're just falling into an old pattern. So when we can set down the judgment, even people that are going through that first year of AA or NA, and they fall off the wagon and they loathe themselves, they hate themselves for you know not living up to other people's expectations, for betraying themselves, for falling off their bike, so to speak. You know, if you can just set down the judgment, you're more likely just with 100% love, be like, you know what? I fell back into an old pattern. It's just an old pattern. And I can choose to make a new pattern. Everybody's allowed to be human. Absolutely. And it is. uh, 
what you had described about patterns being being one's patterns or being the victim of one's patterns or doing something active to modify one's patterns. I mean, it was, you know, for me, it was really a decision of do I want to be driven or do I want to drive? That was transformative. That alone was helpful enough to get past some of the some of the judgment and face some of the things I needed to face. Well, and I think there's two things. There's bringing awareness to your patterns. And then there's the action piece of I have free will. I can choose to, in the moment, pick a different pattern. And then wherever you're at in those two assessments, you just do it with 100% love and no judgment. It's like, well, I'm going to drink today because I just feel like it. Okay. Just bring awareness to the next day. You know, and at some point your free will comes in and you're like, yeah, I really would prefer to have that better day tomorrow. So I'm going to change what I do tonight. Ruth, it was really great talking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com. Oncology.com.